0: hello you're listening to the extended version of book shambles because you're a patreon supporter and that makes you better than everyone else and you deserve treats thanks very much for the support here it is Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and get extended episodes each and every week. And also we have just started opening up the archive of the incomplete map of the cosmic genome and uh, putting up lots of the interviews from that, from uh almost 10 years ago now, um, making that available exclusively for Patreon supporters. That is content you won't be able to find anywhere else. The first interview is up now, and it includes Steve Batchel. So check that out. Don't forget to check out Robin's new podcast as well, Taking the Universe Around the World, his tour diaries of the Horizons tour with Professor Brian Cox and the fact that he is on tour is why Helen Chersky is back in the host's chair for Book Shambles this week, an episode for all the dog lovers out there Also, it is probably worth mentioning that uh, during this episode, Helen and Jules uh, talk about some of the history of um, scientific understanding of dogs. Um, And that does involve talking about some of the uh, early grim experiments that were done by people like Pavlov. So that might be a bit distressing for some listeners, uh, but Helen flags up. In, in the actual podcast, Helen flags up when they're getting to that bit. So that's just something to be aware of. So here is Helen and zoologist Jules Howard.
1: Welcome to Science Book Shambles. I'm Helen Cheresky. I'm standing in for Robin Ince because uh, he's still on tour with Brian in the USA. But today we are talking about books because this is Science Book Shambles. And it's a topic I don't remember discussing before on. Um, on book shambles, actually, which is dogs. We're going to be talking about dogs and uh, everyone loves a dog. Most people love a dog. There are some people who are not great fans, but um, most people are well on board with dogs. They're much loved members of many households. They're companions and playmates. Some some of them are all right at guard dogs. But the best thing about a dog, as anyone who's had one will know, is that if you ever have a day when you feel the rest of the world hates you, It's okay because you get home and your dog is there looking at you, wagging its tail, basically trying to tell you as high as strongly as it can that it thinks you're the best thing in the world, possibly other than the tin of dog food. Um, So uh, dogs are on board with, you know, dogs are fun. We have them around. They're part of human society. But Have they also got a role in the history of science in changing our thinking about life and behaviour? Well, someone thinks they have. uh, And that is Jules Howard, who has written a book called Wonder Dog, making that argument. And it has just been published. And so, Jules, welcome to Shambles.
2: Thank you so much, Helen. It's a total pleasure to be here. So thank you.
1: So I I sort of have to start with this question. Do you have a dog?
2: I have got a dog. His name is Ozzy he is uh he's a he's a if i say lurcher it sort of demeans him a bit so i'm gonna he's like a kind of bedlington Whippet mix but basically he's a bit of a mutt and he is um he's you know like as you said all dogs he's like a place we can go in the house for nice warm cuddles and uh i let him lick my ears is that really forbidden
1: I I my sister's dog licks my ears all the time so I'm I'm not (laughs) going to we do it like you know like
2: um uh you know like you go up to anything am I gonna is it are they gonna expect a one kiss or two kiss and uh you know like it's kind of French double cheek job with Oz seems to know that I kind of like the left ear done and then move to the right ear so
1: we get each other
2: man yeah
1: <laughs> very systematic um so your your book is all about the relationship between humans and dogs and in a way I, th- I mean part of the point that you make i think through the book is that in science we are taught we aim apparently to be objective that we are going to look at things with you know on a hypothesis we're going to test hypotheses and we're going to collect evidence it's all going to be very um well, I mean, almost robotic. And actually part of the point you're making in the book is that first of all, it's very hard to do that with dogs, really, with the relationship we have with dogs at the moment, because they're our friends, right? You know, mm. um, and secondly, that actually science changes a bit if you allow the dogs, you know, if you if you actually think about your responses to the dog rather than it just, you know, treating it as an object of study. Um. So what, you know, and I know the whole book's about this, but what what do you think our relationship with dogs is? Like, where are we now with that?
2: I think the where are we now is is actually the best kind of question because it implies that it will change in future and it was different in the past. And I think the relationship that we've had with dogs from about the 1800s it things get completely crazy for a while you know you have darwin publishing and our ideas of of humans being isolated from nature completely being kind of smashed and you've got the development of um uh, the industrial revolution and the the continuation of that revolution in terms of medical science and you know the the um the massive strides being made in, in kind of disease research and the role that dogs have played there but you've also got Pavlov, as well, and the whole idea of conditioning and how what brains are, how they work, nature or nurture. And kind of in a weird sort of way, yeah, dogs have been there um, throughout all of that. And at the moment, in the last 20 years or so, there's been um, as I'm sure you're aware and your listeners will be aware, of course, there's been a kind of explosion in um cognitive sciences because of what dogs are now telling us. So for a long time, um, you know, in the 80s and even in the 90s, dogs were kind of considered you know, you don't want to study them. They're dumb wolves was the term. They're dumb wolves. They're not, you want to do zoology, just ignore dogs. They've been corrupted by humankind. And actually at the moment, we've got this boom time of research, which is kind of taking advantage of the fact that family dogs, uh, you know, can be taught through fun and through positive rewards to do all sorts of things in the name of science. And we get to learn some really cool um, cognitive stuff. So where it goes next, you know, we we don't know. But I think at the moment, we can really positively say, you know, dogs are much more intelligent than we ever gave them credit for. They're emotionally intelligent, socially intelligent, um, and they are probably the gateway drug, (laughs) the gateway drug we have to understand more about animal cognition generally.
1: I'm sure all the cat lovers are probably very jealous at this point because I it was it Winston Churchill who said dogs have owners and cats have staff. I think I, I don't know where the cats, I don't know where the cats sit in all this. If you're a cat fan, do stick with us. Um, there, there may not be much about cats, but I'm sure they've got their place. Um, but but I'm interested in this concept of humans and dogs as a team, because obviously, I mean, in a way, I've always said about cats and I'm probably going to get hate messages. Are you a cat I am, person? I am Helen? more of a dog person than a cat person. Oh, OK, right. I'm only okay. I I am you know but that's basically because of a cat called Toby that my aunt had when i was little that was very cross all the time and so my initial interactions with cats were very negative <laughs> toby didn't <laughs> like anybody um used to hiss a lot and hide under the sofa um so so i've always I've, i'm i'm much more of a dog person um but but the thing about i've always thought that cats you know our relationship with cats they kind of they are tuned to get us to do what they want which is you know they've got Big eyes. They meow when there's humans around. They don't meow when they're not. You know that they're sort of they're want they're tuned in one way to get what they want out of humans. And dogs are tuned in a different way. It's much more egalitarian with dogs, isn't it? Like, tell us about where dogs came from.
2: So, if you think um, my my feeling is that cats are, and I'm not dissing cats. I'm also I think secretly deep down I am a cat person. I'd say my deepest relationship with an animal was. Not Oz, the dog. It was actually the cat we had before him. Um, but yeah, so I think cats are about 6,000 years behind dogs. So I, I, I'm one of those people that kind of thinks that relationship with cats will carry on changing. Um, and in fact, some of the best psychology experiments about learning curves were done on cats using cats rather than dogs, because I think they're a bit sort of more, their paws are more, they can manipulate things in a different kind of way. So, yeah, the the, the I suppose the story of dogs in a nutshell is, you know, wolves are out there, and they've adapted to a um, a wild environment. And dogs have adapted to a kind of human ecosystem, if you like. So the 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 theory, which is still the strongest one, is that humans started making encampments, and then sometime before ten thousand years ago, um, dogs. So I guess the best way of describing it is this: is if you imagine there is some um we now realize of course there's there's certain genes that um code for sociality and the more insertions the more uh, mutations i guess you have on those genes the more social the animal is and if you think about wolves might have two or so insertions so fairly social if you imagine a world of early world wolves those wolves with added insertions added mutations on those sociality genes are the ones that go do you know what humans are not as scary as you think. And if you hang around with them, you get to eat their feces or, you know, all their waste or their throwaway leftover bones. So those mutations, if you like, flourish in a human environment. And in fact, dogs have, wolves have like two mutations and dogs have uh, kind of five or even six mutations. So they're much more social by nature. So I guess that's it. You know, dogs are, dogs wouldn't exist if it wasn't for, human um waste and the fact that we as a species began um situating ourselves in you know in single places for certain periods of time before moving on so i mean it's 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 fascinating really i mean the the way i've heard it described is you know other animals are survival of the fittest but you know with dogs they're one of the only animals who who it's a case of kind of survival of the friendliest i suppose
1: sounds like a nicer way to survive yeah yeah
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I think Darwin would have quite liked that idea, don't you think?
1: Well, I mean, so this is all about the benefits of social behaviour, isn't it? I mean, this mm. is like you know the dogs find they get food, and and um, and we'll come on to what the dogs think about all this, or what we might think about what the dogs think about all this at the end. But I, this, I mean, you, you, so in the book you kind of go through, you sort of it, it's kind of chronological more or less that you go through how our relationship with dogs has changed in the context of science, and and. I wanted to and obviously there are a few grim bits which you sort of skip over we will give warnings to the listeners when there might be a grim bit coming up but before we get to the grim bits um, I was one of the things that really struck me in there was the um, impact of the disease rabies mm. so there were feral dogs around you know dog and I, I think that's one of the once you start having cities and things then you can have lots of dogs that kind of have a a mixed relationship with humans you know that they are they're still foraging and then rabies comes along just set out what the difference that what what rabies is perhaps and then what it does to this relationship between humans and dogs
2: so if you imagine right now nine out of ten dogs on the planet are um, free-ranging dogs so they don't have owners and they're making a living probably just as our just as their ancestors were on human habitations on the human ecosystem um and we don't see that in britain that's been that was part of the case in most major western cities um still is in some uh but dogs were very much a part of you know they were on streets as well as in people's hands uh, in in people's houses as pets they were very much you know everywhere and the reason
1: perhaps rather yeah in 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 a
2: weird sort of way yeah i can i agree with that um and so you've got the street dogs you've got uh 18th century sorry 19th century um society really embracing dogs mobilized middle classes um female women empowerment as well you know part of this story in terms of and then darwin of course saying you know what dogs are you know on the same spectrum as us and then everyone's like whoa you know dogs but the street dogs are still kind of aloof i suppose they're background characters and um rabies is kind of spilling across the world at this point so a disease that um obviously affects the the uh, nervous system the 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 um pathogen spreads through saliva that's one of the ways it spreads so obviously um erratic behaviors from dogs convulsions but particularly biting is one of the ways that um that this disease spreads and the thing that i really i would i mean this is taking about four years of research, but like that was one of the bits. I was like, there really is a story here to be told, and it was the fact that um, the government was uh, uh, asking people to mask up. They were asking the people to mask their dogs, and um, so the pet dogs that were being walked, you've got to mask them up to limit the spread of um, of rabies, and you know society really hating that idea of having their freedoms their dogs freedoms uh kind of taken away from them i was reading this like thinking oh my god that's exactly what's kind of going on right now with uh, the pandemic that we've all obviously lived through um so yeah slowly but surely um in other countries you know new york for instance people were paid to dispatch of street dogs um to limit the spread of rabies um in the uk and we, should,
1: we should add here perhaps that rabies can spread into humans That this yes. is not just about a, a disease that is you know Going through the dog population. that, I mean, I've had rabies jabs. They're, I don't think they last very long, but you know, it's it's a concern today for humans who go to places where there are feral dogs.
2: So yeah, so the, the um, animal welfare. Because, as I say, of this mobilisation of this kind of campaigning culture, animal welfare in in Britain was actually kind of ahead of other countries. So the idea of just slaughtering all of these street dogs was not, you know, not not necessarily something that polite society was after. So you you get this sort of building of dog shelters, Battersea Dogs Home, Uh, Charles Dickens, Queen Victoria. They're all like, Way, we absolutely love, uh, you know, giving a home to these these poor stray dogs. Um, And, you know, bit by bit street dogs kind of disappear from the streets um, of London, partly, um, as I say, because of, you know, actions to remove them. Um, and the rabies, it seems that, you know, no one's quite sure in, in the UK anyway, what, what led it the numbers to drop really, really low, whether it was muzzling, whether, whether it was the removal of street dogs. But you end up with this situation where we've all got pet dogs. And so the industry really, you know, um, the, the dog keeping industry really Boosts it really booms in the in the last century, the last decade of the of the nineteenth century. You have things like crufts and you have you know back then there was like two hundred breeds. Within fifty years, there's something like uh, five hundred or even six hundred breeds. So this becomes a really 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 um, big deal. And actually, with with that, it's kind of like a a culture war that I never knew about. Um, you know, you've got the idea of one side, um, particularly the scientists at those times, particularly the medical institutions really kind of like well we need those dogs to operate on because we want you know in your case that cure you uh, that um uh vaccine you had for rabies obviously louis pasteur you know operated on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dogs to get that right and you know half of society is like we love this we love science the other half of society is like oh dear this is not a good thing we are not cool with this and actually those you know those two um counterparts of culture you know actually ended up in in britain you know actually at war with one another and literally riots in the streets. And in fact, so so tense did things become that actually when it came to really big developments in human cognition and the use of dogs for understanding cognition, it wasn't in the UK. It happened because, you know, polite society wouldn't allow it. So Ivan Pavlov's ideas, particularly, they got their roots. Uh, they, they kind of they were like seeds. They kind of blew across the Atlantic and settled in North America. So that, that's kind of I love what you said at the start um, of this interview. It's not really this isn't a book about, oh, let me tell you what dogs do. That's not this book at all. That's this is a book of like how um, science and culture in, entwined against one another and how science moves forward. But science is not in this case anyway, is not something that's performed with like kind of surgical precision. You know, it's actually in this case science. The fact that dogs are so close to us it's really hard to separate which aspects are pure science and which aspects are culture that's kind of been influenced by science so it's a really for me it was a really interesting and new way of considering um you know a subject I thought I knew really well
1: well we should probably mention in a limited way and it will become clear why I've just said that um the most famous sort of in us in a um in general conversation, the most famous dog experiment of all time, which is Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs, you know, this sort of common phrase for um, a sort of habituated response that, you know, and and the, I think the common, I'll, I'll give the common story and then you can tell us what actually happened with 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 the grimmest bits you know with a black line through the grimmest bits because it does get a bit grim so the common story which you can correct but the sort of thing that you hear if you talk to people is that pavlov worked out that if you uh, a dog would come dog would start salivating when it stole food if you rang a bell when it started to eat it would then associate the bell with the food and then if you didn't produce any food but you just rang the bell the dog would start salivating because it associated the bell with the food i think the popular version of it goes something like that set the record straight here
2: <laughs> you know i well is i remember learning that version at uni you know the, the idea of this well dressed russian gentleman and some nice dogs he's got a nice little bell um and the thing the thing i'd really like to underline is actually the most gruesome bits are in the further the, there's quite a big note section so i put nearly all of the stuff in there to give people a chance to avoid it if they wish my personal feeling is it's kind of worth us talking about this because For us to understand where um, animal cognition science goes next, you kind of need to know the background. You know, it's no point us saying, oh, Pavlov, he was just a Russian gentleman, everything's okay, because there's no way for us to um, temper and measure and ethically go in the right direction with future studies. So, yeah, Pavlov, um, okay, uh, there's so much, isn't there? Okay, first of all, there was no bell. Uh, Bell is a mistranslation of buzzer um but lots of things were actually used lots of stimuli were were actually used so including electric shocks and metronomes and all sorts um else but the actual i mean pavlov never really meant to find this out pavlov was most interested actually in saliva in digestive enzymes and he was at at that stage most of the science on animals had been in a really kind of limited like okay medical science get that animal do this to it and then dissect it and see what happens and actually, Pavlov was part of a new generation that wanted to do longer term studies. And this is, you know, the bit that, you know, is, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, horrifying on reflection um, that you would keep an animal uh, in a cage and measure over days and ideally weeks, um, you know, the, the status of that animal, the life status of that animal. So what they did was basically uh, open up a wound in the dog's um, uh, neck. And through that, it's a fistula, basically, and through that wound, you could um, see uh, glands at work and collect, you know, the, the stuff dripping out of glands. Um, so Pavlov's interested in collecting the digestive enzymes. And uh, through this little setup, there's a little tube that comes out of the dog and goes into a little pot. He was like, wow, this is really good. I can create create absolutely loads of um, saliva to to investigate and look at. And it was only later on he was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Whenever that guy who does the feeding walks into the room, the saliva really, really pumps out. And as you say, exactly right you know that they've come to associate just the entry of the person who does the feeding with the production of food whether or not that person prepares the food the saliva kind of pumps so um so at that the thing that i think the thing that i can't get out of my head is that he realized that by just putting a, a plate of meat near the dogs and there was obviously more than dogs i in fact i named them all you know um just a help us remember these poor poor animals um he would put a plate of meat and the dogs would start salivating and he would just collect the saliva he didn't even need to feed the dogs but he was harvesting this stuff these digestive enzymes these the saliva and he was bottling it up and he was producing like six thousand liters of uh, dog saliva um a year and he was giving that to high society selling it as a cure for dyspepsia kind of heartburn and he was like something like 60 or 70% of his laboratory's coffers were coming from him selling a uh, dog's saliva. And so uh, I just find it so it interesting. It's grim,
1: isn't it's it? Gr- I mean, it's totally lots, I grim. I mean, humans have done lots of things to animals and including eat them. People regularly still eat them. And that is not exactly a cruelty-free process. But um, it is, I mean, in, our, in our, to our modern eyes, this is a bit grim. But I think the thing that's interesting about this is that it exactly, it does highlight this... Um, this the duality, this this two ways of looking at the world that you talk about, which is that, which is compassion versus knowledge, and and hmm. they don't have to be in opposition. And we would hope that we're doing better with that now, but there is this fight between compassion and knowledge. And the bit that I was very interested in is where the feminists got involved in all of this. So tell us, tell us about that.
2: So the, yeah, it's really interesting. So I think it's really important to say that the at the time, most feminists weren't necessarily anti-vivisectionists, but there was a clear crossover, and that crossover was partly because of increased empowerment of women. Uh, time, you know, that, that women had, middle-class women had around the house. Obviously, there was more free time, so there was more time to get involved in these um, in these campaigns. And there's just some spectacular characters. They're like superheroes. Some of these guys, you know, um, I use the word guys yeah. in a winky sense, but you know, it's absolutely. I mean, one of them, Lizzie Lund, who, who who actually went to Louis Pasteur's laboratory and was horrified about the dogs being used there and was like, I'm going to set up this big, um, this big campaign against it. And she infiltrated infiltrated Russia, uh, London society and the medical institutions and got to see some of these, um, you know, what she considered illegal experiments on dogs. And in fact, she wrote her book, The Shambles of Science. So I always think of that when I think of your podcast. Um, and, and it really did light up society. And you have again. It's a little. I wonder what it would be like with Twitter in those days. But in many ways, the same arguments were coming out. Uh, you know, the idea that oh, you know, some of them, some of these these ladies were wearing fur, and people were like, "Well, you can't stand up for the rights of dogs. You're wearing fur." Some of them were, you know. Um, uh, Oh, I've forgotten the the the, the way of saying it. you know on Twitter when you are showing off how amazingly ethical and right oh, on you you're are. A what's a the for signaling. that? Jo- Josie's favorite term. That is one of
1: the shambles. <laughs>
2: but yes, but yeah, you know there was real. You know, one hundred and fifty years is a long time, but I was really surprised at how many of those kinds of arguments we see t- today. And and to be brutally honest, I think I wanted to write a science book that had more of that in it to to again show this crossover between science and culture because i i was not aware of that honestly i my my account with Pav, of pavlov was like yours i think it was a kind of like here is a big step in our understanding of how brains work here is pavlov and actually this is a this is this was a really heated time. And I and I wonder whether or not in 150 years we might look at today and you know this this era that we're in and just think, okay, that was another really heated time um in you know in society.
1: So one of the things that you you sort of go through in the book is this attitudes to dog, you know, dog behavior, and then people start thinking about cognition and what a dog actually understands. And I guess for people, we should probably talk about this a bit just because anyone who owns a dog uh, or who anyone in the modern world who owns in our culture, who owns a dog. And I'm sure people in the past, you know, you watch your dog do things and respond to things. And there's always this question of how much is this anthropomorphization? You know, he wants this, he likes this, you know, she, she, you, she knows you're going to do that. Um, and how much is it, real that they 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 do like or feel like how how much do we project our emotions onto dogs and and how are we working out whether whether we're projecting too much or not
2: i think that's a really really good question i think one of the ones that i and i think most of us go through is this kind of like ooh the dog's looking guilty do you know yeah. what i mean <laughs> oh yeah i know what you've been up to that kind of thing and as a kid with our family dog when i was younger like i can remember like my parents doing the whole this is i'm really embarrassed to say it but i, I don't think we were the only ones about this is what 30 40 years ago but you know kind of the he would do a basically do a poo in the kitchen and it'd be like oh look what you've done and not rubbing his nose in it but holding his face nearby like, oh. and it was totally pointless you know if anything so much time had passed we now realize that you know between the thing happening let's say the dog goes to the toilet in the night and you come down next morning and you're like look what you've done the dog's just kind of like oh wow sometimes my owner's really unpredictable sometimes you know I'm really worried about him coming downstairs because he's going to be shouting at me and that makes me nervous and that makes me act out in other ways so this idea of what behavior and association is it's quite a small window really Um, so So there's a small
1: window in time here so the idea is that dogs, dogs can take feedback but it needs to be pretty much immediate
2: yeah yeah exactly exactly in the moment i suppose you could say um but for me one of the the one of the most interesting recent developments in 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 terms of you know how dogs feel is comes from this fm fmri studies where family dogs uh trained often by their their owners actually uh, who happen to be scientists, and they sit very quietly and politely in an fMRI, fMRI machine, and they basically um, allow their brain to be scanned. And you can do different things to dogs. So, for instance, you can go, "Oh, here's a treat," and you can see what bits of their brain light up. And you can see um, if the owner comes in and says hi, and the dog's wagging its tail. Again, you get a chance to see what that looks like and compare it to the human response. And there's a certain part called the caudate nucleus, a certain part of the brain which, which um, kind of lights up with feelings of, I suppose you could call it pleasure. And you can see quite clearly that dogs respond in the same way. So in terms of emotions, I think um, certain stronger emotions all mammals feel, you know, for instance, uh, pleasure, obviously pain, uh, jealousy, those kinds of emotions. But those more, I was going to say advanced, but I, don't, I think that does a disservice to other animals. But those other um emotions such as uh you know regrets and this sort of thing i'm not sure we've got enough evidence for that yet but you're absolutely right i think we all do that i think we want to um we want to i don't you think it's just a very human thing to do that in some ways we should actually we should
1: add the um the permanent fmri caveat which is that just because so what it shows is that there's there's oxygen going to that part of the brain doesn't doesn't tell you what's happening it just tells you that that bit of the brain woke up and did something
2: i agree with that i think 30 years ago the idea of being able to do that kind of study would have been well that's impossible because you, you, a dog couldn't sit still like that that wouldn't work
1: i thought there's a really interesting point in there about um mirror tests so there is this famous thing that you know that some animals pass in inverted commas this test which is um that you know you show i think i think one of the most common forms is that you paint something on an animal's face when it's asleep and then you show it a mirror and if it if it sees the 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 mark in the mirror and real and goes to touch its own face you know it's kind of clocked that the thing in the mirror is itself and that it that means there's something on itself and and this is put up as a test but you make the point that perhaps that isn't valid for dogs tell us because dogs don't pass the classical form of this test but talk to us a little bit about why that might be
2: yeah i mean it's it's a classic sort of human centric test and i've since learned if this is in the further notes in the in the book actually that not all human cultures respond in the same way to a mirror so expecting animals to respond to a mirror like most of us do in the western world is um is it's just a, a stretch you know it's a bit like iq tests you know what are they really testing you know intelligence or are they a test that applies to all of you know humankind neurodiverse for instance you know no the answer is no so mirror test for me is a little bit um like that classically dogs dogs sorry don't pass it um although dogs can recognize the approach of a human in a mirror so if a dog's looking at a mirror they can seem to recognize that so they clearly so understand if you, you
1: can't sneak up on them from behind they exactly. know you're they know you're coming
2: yeah yeah and so um some again in the last 20 years it's in this period really when we're learning so much and it all started off with the book's called Wonder Dog because it's it, the dogs are, are kind of characters in there um, and dogs, the, the dogs owned by scientists or um, sharing their lives with scientists are often the, the dogs that help scientists go, oh, my gosh, that's weird. And we all know what amazing science comes from that sentence. So this was a scientist, Mark Beckoff, who was going for a walk with his um, dog, uh, his dog, Jethro, and they're going for a walk through the snow. And the dog does a wee in the snow, nice yellow patch. And, and um, Beckoff thinks, you know what? I'm going to take that handful of yellow snow like and I'm do. going to, like you do, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to move it over uh, here. And then when we come back, I'll see whether the dog um, investigates that yellow snow and is like, oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, in that simple experiment, the dog wasn't that bothered about its own urine. It was very interested in the other dog's urine. And since then, since that experience, you know, between a person, a scientist, and a dog, Um, other scientists have repeated that test with little canisters of urine and again like different concentrations of urine from one dog and even in some cases kind of mixing things up a little bit and seeing the response that that dogs um, have to their own smell and to other dogs and clearly you know dogs do recognize themselves they recognize their own scent you know but the trouble with these things is like what's that really telling us you know what what does it mean if an dogs could well recognize recognize themselves in a mirror and just be like that's just me I've I've done that do you know what I mean <laughs> I think we like mirrors because we're like kind of interested in ourselves but dogs are about us they're about everything going on around them in many ways so you know that's a great example of um how animal cognition scientists have kind of reframed what we previously thought about the natural world. The 80s and 90s was all it was basically just a one big kind of, oh, can they uh, can they lie? Do they have theory of mind? Can they pass a mirror test and actually... You know, I think we've moved past this to devising like kind of cleverer, um, cleverer techniques, cleverer methodologies, I suppose. You know, I often I often come up with this analogy in my head talking about stuff like this. It's like we've human, science is this wonderful you know, gadget science. You know, the science of animals is like a magnifying glass and we hold it up to nature. And often the temptation is to look at the reflection of the human in the magnifying glass and not look through it. And I think to a degree, you know, the story of animal cognition science has been, you know, 150 years of that. Um, and there's other things. I mean, the thing that I I love, and it sort of links to the self-recognition stuff is um, Alexandra Horovitz is a really amazing dog cognition scientist. And some of her research into how dogs play and the fact that, you know, she, she observed slow motion Play bouts between dogs, and looked at what's going on there. We kind of take it for granted when you see it in the park, but you know, dogs that want to play, they can sort of modify their playing style depending on if they're playing against a, a small dog, or a fast dog, or a big dog, or a loud dog. And if the you know the dog they're trying to play with, that dog's attention focuses on a bird or a squirrel or something like that, then the dog who really wants to play will manipulate and change its behavior and try and get in the face of the dog. Hey, I'm here. Let's play. And if that was a primate, if that was chimpanzees, we'd be like, we'd be saying, well, well, this is exactly right. This is what we always knew about chimpanzees. But because it's dogs, we find it harder to kind of um, get into that mind space. And I think her research in particular and the the um, sniff test, it's called the the yellow snow test, are really helping us. um, I suppose, imagine what recognition looks like in a a non-human way where we're not looking in the mirror and doing our hair and stuff.
1: Well, I guess a lot of it, I mean, it's difficult because, you know, we know that our own brains are constantly constructing the world from what our senses give it. And a dog's prioritization of its senses appears to be different. And so the question of whether we're ever going to know what a dog constructs out of its sensory inputs, you know, it's quite a big stretch. But on the other hand, it does seem very clear that dogs are genuinely happy to see humans. You know, I think most people who've got a happy dog don't think that's a that's a kind of learned behavior. In order to get food or something i was quite interested i think there's a statement you make perhaps towards the end of the book where you say that the natural environment of a dog is in the company of a human um which is a quite you know an interesting way of thinking about it because we assume that we have extracted dogs from nature in mm. some way but what you're saying is we've constructed a new. we didn't just take them away we put them into something else um, and that and we're still i guess you know we're still working out what that is
2: Yeah, I would say it's a process of adaptation on the dogs on the dogs' part. We created this this habitat, this ecosystem. Dogs have uh, I was going to say taken advantage, but that actually requires you know some some form of thought. It's just a case of wow, look at all this waste. (laughs) If you get to know these humans, they really connect you in a big way. And in fact, a lot of cultures. I mean, pet. I'm not I'm not 100 sure about whether I'm okay with the word pet, but I'm going to use it in this context. But you know. Um, it's very interesting the behavior of um cultures all over the world when it comes to you know looking after animals and there's you know many cultures where they 'll look after um uh, primates or injured birds and keep them as pets so it may well be that dogs were kind of ahead- my feeling i've got kind of nothing to back this up with, but my feeling is that dogs are kind of ahead of the game, and humans are as we 've all seen and are, are naturally um, I mean, you just look at the amount of emojis there are of animals. Do you know what I mean? We're clearly, if you were an alien race looking through someone's phone, you'd be like, wow, animals are quite a big deal to these things. So it may well be in in future, you know, other other animals kind of adapt and take on that role that that that, that dogs have.
1: Well, mm. it's interesting. I mean, you remind me this will displease some people i'm sure but my cousin uh kept tur- two turkeys for a while and the names of the two turkeys were christmas and dinner and so <laughs> i'm not sure that that relationship is exactly the same you know there's a there's a humans definitely look after animals but exactly you know what the animals are getting out of it is 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 open to some question one um, of the
2: one of the things um i think one of the messages of the book obviously is is um you know, the more compassionate we've become in searching through the minds of animals, the more intelligent they've shown us to be. So, a great example of that, relating to what you're saying about those turkeys, is um, for a long time humans were evolutionary biologists were like humans are the only ones that can understand a pointing gesture. You know what that actually means, um, innately and um for a long time that was it that was the line there's someone a lecturer was giving this you know patter about it a really respected lecturer i should say and someone in the audience said well my dog can follow a point and everyone's like oh be stupid dogs can't do that and um they went home and again it's another example of a wonder dog this person undergraduate worked with his dog videoed the dog you know fetching balls where he was pointing um and the the for a long time, it was like, well, it's just humans and dogs that can understand pointing. But in fact, there are other animals if you cohabit and uh, consider them companion companion animals. So, for instance, pigs, pigs that are reared alongside humans. Guess what? They understand pointing. Uh, wolves that are reared alongside humans. Again, they understand pointing. So it may well be that that's exactly that's exactly it. Actually, it may well, it may well be that turkeys treated uh, in a compassionate way. Are like people like that's so interesting. That 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 turkey's looking, you know, that that turkey's following a point, or that turkey's looking guilty. You know, all these things that we associate with dog behaviors could well be much kind of wider spread. And that was again, that's something I I mean, something I didn't really appreciate at all before before writing writing the book.
1: So um, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but before we finish, I just wanted to ask, so, you know, anyone who walks into a park, you know, perhaps, especially on the weekend or in the early morning, certainly there's, there's parks in London like this, you walk in there. And as soon as you start looking, there are dogs everywhere and there are humans everywhere. And, you know, the humans are out walking the dogs, the dogs are all playing together or chasing each other or whatever they're doing. What next time our listeners walk out into a park and see the humans and the dogs all occupying the park together what should we think about this like oh, what, what are we that. looking at
2: okay it's such a good question that's really good um so I would say um two things one is attachment so humans human um social groups one of the things that you often notice is when kids feel a bit scared they might go to their um you know their, their guardian or their parent and just stand close if there's a potential threat and you see exactly the same thing with with dogs um, it's called the Strange Situation Test, and it was known in psychology for a long time. And it's something you can apply and see in, in real life looking at dogs. Those dogs that are playing, again, is it's that sort of play signals, this kind of um, uh, theory of mind. So how dogs manipulate or use the information available to It's a bit like a puzzle to maximise their um their play but also i mean there's all sorts of else. dog vocalizations are really really interesting they're another part of the story is how much dogs communicate with um differences in pitch uh, but even the wagging of a tail like i didn't appreciate that like a dog that wags its tail to the left so that is as i'm looking to you imagine me with a wagging tail coming to from the left of me um that's a sign of uh, you know genuine warmth and excitement and then a wagged slightly to the right is slight nervousness. And that's because dogs, of course, like us, have different hemispheres to their brain that um, that, that are involved in those um, muscular processes in slightly different ways. So that's it. They're just like a they're like a go to zoology machine. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like a jukebox of evolutionary discovery, I suppose. <laughs>
1: Well, that is certainly one way to look at uh, dogs in the park. Um, we're going to have to finish that. It's a real shame. Um, the book is uh, Wonder Dog, How the Science of Dogs Change the Science of Life by Jules Howard. Um, and it's especially if you're a dog lover, I think you'll enjoy it. But I think non-dog, there's enough dogs around in life that the non-dog lovers are probably going to find quite a lot in it as well. Um, just a bit of uh, shambles uh, admin towards the end here. Don't forget uh, to subscribe or have a look at the Patreon Uh and uh, if you'd like to support what we're doing, that's a very good way to do it. And there's loads of extra material if you do that. Uh, and all the ways to find out about all the cosmic shamb- shambolically things that are going on, that all of that is on the Cosmic Shambles website. So have a look there. So uh, that's it for today. Thank you very much to Jules Howard for talking about the book Wonder Dog. Uh, and that's it. Have a good day.
2: Thanks for all that, nice. Helen. That
0: was really nice. Thanks very much for listening. As Helen said, Jules's book is out now. Helen's books are out now, so you can get them signed editions from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the podcast, rate, review, like on Apple Podcasts and beyond. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.